All right, friends, Zig coming in, started off today on the show. We have Bob Lord. Bob is a man of a ridiculous amount of talent. He is a bassist, um, composer, producer, and head CEO of Parma Recordings. And I know a lot of my listeners are out of Ohio. You may be thinking Ohio Parma, not Ohio Parma. Parma of New Hampshire. And that's the smallest way I can sum up his career. It's ridiculous and expansive. I try to do an absurd amount of research when I when I'm talking to somebody, and like Bob's just baffled me. And it shows. It shows in his personality. He was very exciting. He's a very fun person to talk to. And it with and in his music, it bounces everywhere, just like he does. He's always in movement, and there's something to that. Um, always being a movement keeps everything fresh and keeps everything, keeps the brain going, keeps you constantly thinking and coming up with new ways to handle new situations and having to learn. Bob has a new record out called Playland Arcade, and it's his first solo record. This is a guy that has access to endless amount of recording opportunities for himself, and this is his first time doing his own record. It's a really cool, um, like concept record that hits so many different genres in like a four minute song. Like the, there is not a lack of artistic integrity found anywhere near this record. I highly recommend it. We're going to play the tune. Yo soy Miguel off a uh, playland arcade. Yo Soy Miguel off Playland Arcade. Um, super fun, catchy tune. It doesn't do justice by itself. You got to hear the whole thing, Playland Arcade. You got to hear the whole thing as a piece and hear where it fits in. 
Bob was such a delight to talk to. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you guys. But before that, this podcast is mixed by Studio 44 CLE, Studio 44 Cleveland. You can reach Studio 44 at gmail.com, Studio 44 Cleveland at gmail.com or Studio 44 Cleveland on Facebook. You get to a guy named Jay. If you want your podcast to sound this good or if you have a band you want to record, some solo records, uh, if you have... um. Maybe a stream you want to do, and you don't know how to do it. If you have a video you want to look and sound good, Jay's your guy. He can make it happen. Also, if you can like, subscribe, rate, review the podcast on all the podcast platforms, it helps this podcast get shared and helps me keep reaching out to cool people to share their insights with you guys. Without further ado, Mr. Lord. That's really interesting. You know, I um, I ran the community service program at my high school when I was yeah. there. So I, I ran it for two years. And so I was coordinating like, you know, I think it was about 300 kids and just volunteering and everything. And my time was spent, uh, my personal volunteering time was spent in nursing homes. No way. So, yeah, yeah. Nice. I, I just, I love the elderly and um, yeah. It, it, so I have a, a lot of background in that. And I think those they're, they're difficult places to be. I get it. Um, but boy, it's so wonderful to bring some sunshine into, into those places, you know? For sure. What what yeah. were you doing there? What was a just just spending time, just, just volunteering and, okay. and and talking to folks and yeah, yep. It's crazy how much that helps, right? Just having yeah. someone to talk to, having someone to yak at and hear your stories and how yeah. important that is to just life. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's it's interesting because you know, my day job, um, which is a whole separate thing entirely, but you know, CEO of a music company, uh, you know, a lot of the artists I work with are 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 old. I had a conversation with one of my good buddies, this guy, his name is Yehudi Weiner. Yehudi is uh, 90, 92 years old, lives just outside of Boston. He won the Pulitzer, I think about 20 years ago. Uh, he was the president of the Academy oh. of Arts and Letters. Um, he's a genius composer and a genius piano player. And by the way, he's sharper than you and I put together right now. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's he, and, and that is not an exaggeration. He is, yeah. He's still, I think, peaking. And so we're talking, um, I made him some food. I, I, I like to cook people food and shit. Like, it's a nice thing to do. And so I, I made him some food. I dropped it off. He called me up. And he's just like, oh, Baba Lardo, it's so amazing. You give me this great food all the time. What the hell? And so we're talking. He's like, it reminds me of the time when I was in Rome. He said, it was 1953. It was me, Igor, and Salvador. And I said, okay, Yehudi, hold up. Hold on. You, Igor, and Salvador. He said, yeah. I said, Stravinsky. Igor Stravinsky. He said, yes. What? I said, Salvador. I said, Salvador Dali. He said, yeah, of course. Oh. I said, okay, continue. I mean, and, and so it's, you know to have access to these people. Right. This is the source. This right. is the source material, right? So cool. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. Well, were they like where'd that story go? You can't leave off on that. That's this <laughs> we're we're now starting. This is how this is going. We're going in <laughs> sure, with that. Sure. <laughs> you know, I think he was uh he he was telling me about it in the context of like, you know, musical analysis and talking about like sound and art and all of this. And I think, you know, the, where, where the story evolved was also just talking about these guys a little bit as people and yeah. how, you know, they, they were just as interested in talking about the coffee as they were about talking about the, the, the chords and the harmonies and the paint, which is, I think, a really interesting thing to keep in mind that these people that we perceive to be, you know, titans of their field, right. they're regular guys, right? They, yeah. they, they go through the same things we all went through. And um, it was fascinating. But again, to have like a personal connection and, to be able to get right back to the source, that to me as a musician is it's so important. And I, I remember I had another conversation with an artist that I, I produced for, for quite a while. Good friend of mine, his name is Richard Stoltzman, mm -hmm. uh, Grammy winning clarinet player, um, one of the best clarinetists to walk the face of the earth, and certainly one of the most influential. And you know, we we made a we made a ton of records together over the years. And he was telling me about um about an issue uh 
in, I believe it was Bernstein's Sonata for Clarinet and Piano. And he was going to record it for RCA. So this is back in, I think, maybe about 15 years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, actually, maybe 20. Um, and he gets to the score, and there was a, uh, a marking, a metronome marking in the score, which didn't make any sense, right? It wasn't an, a quote-unquote official metronome marking. Yeah. And, um, and it also musically, Dick, Dick was wondering, well, what do I do with this? How do I interpret this? And it was, you know, quarter note equals 69. And he's like, well, I don't know what this means. A prior section, it doesn't, you know, um, mathematically relate. The, it's not off of the triplet and, and blah, blah, blah. So he said, you know, I think I need to call up my, my teacher, Cal Opperman, who at the time was, I think, 90-something years old, maybe a little bit younger than that. But Cal was the guy that, um, that this piece was written for. And this is uh, Richard Stoltzman's teacher. No shit. So, you know, he's wow. thinking there's only one guy who's going to know what this is all about. Right. And sure enough, he was right. He's like, Cal, you know, explain to me, why, why did Bernstein, you know, mark it that way? Why, why did he mark it quarter note equals 69? And, and what Dick told me, he said, Cal told him, well, it's because Lenny's a pervert. It's 69. <laughs> like, I mean, that, that's the answer, right? <laughs> and it's so amazing that, like, you know, I mean, number one, it's a good story because it's funny. But number right. two, it, it really gets to the point that, like, there are certain answers to musical questions, which number one are not even musical at all. But number two, that, that you can't access unless you're talking to the people who were there. And, uh, and that's why I love working with people who are older than me, people with more experience than me. Um, it's, it's critical to my growth. And I think more people should consider doing it. Right. I agree. I agree. hundred yeah. percent. One that's hilarious that it's, it's like this musical, like what is this riddle trying to figure this thing out? And here's just right. a bit, it's a bit they were doing on all their pieces of music with each other, you yeah. know, like marvelous, right? It's fantastic. <laughs> right. And <laughs> which makes you wonder like so much of like, historical things we look at and artifacts like what what is this and like trying it could have just been like a, a poop joke or whatever like oh yeah man well it's it's interesting because i i backed my way into classical music you know professionally right. and i backed i backed my way into all the stuff i'm a rock and roll bass player from a young age right and i did not start to play bach when i was three years old my parents didn't stand over me making sure my hand position was correct it's not all how this happened yeah so you know i i backed into it and i just followed my ear the whole way and and here i am i've ended up you know with this kind of crazy career that i didn't expect to have that has nothing to do with my hands and my and my bass guitar um but what's 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 so fascinating to me about it is like what you just said like we spend a lot of time as people analyzing stuff which other people just kind of did really fast and then moved on so if you look at, at music theory for example music theory didn't come first and the music came after no music theory was built to explain why certain things work the way that they did and you know and i was i was just doing some reading the day i'm always reading i'm always researching about you know musical stuff and everything anyway i was i was deep in a rabbit hole and as i'm reading this stuff you know what were like, you what, what were we reading like, um, I, I was reading about like just some of like the pitch set theory that Schoenberg okay. was using stuff like this, you okay. know, things which, which I, I don't use and I wouldn't want to use. Right. But, right. But, Cause that's uh, a headache and it's all math and it's so, yeah, it's not really my bag. Right. But anyway, I'm reading about it and the whole time reading about it, I'm like, huh, this is so fascinating because this is so much effort to describe something, you know, it, it, right. And, and, and I mean, I, I think that was so much about even like music, which, can be pleasing to the ear, pleasing to the eye, pleasing mathematically, pleasing musically. But at the end, it's got to be like the musical part that's the most important, not the explanation of all the musical stuff, right? So that's, it's interesting. And, and again, coming at um, coming to this much later in life than most people do, I think, uh, who end up in classical music. So it's it's been an interesting journey for me, that's for sure. 
I'll put a pin in that really quick. But like the Schoenberg stuff, Schoenberg stuff, like it's super, it's like just how you said how it mathematically that is pleasing. Like having this, like yes. these uh, tone rolls and these pitch sets and like you can visually see it and it makes sense that way. But if you would listen to it, it, it you would have to have done the, the, the intro course that even yeah. begin to appreciate it because it's so, it's so out there, but it's, and it's one of those, that's kind of like one of those things where it's like, this is really cool if you're in and you put the time in to explain how this makes sense. But yeah, yeah. But it, it, it's, it, that stuff's fascinating because like it doesn't, it, it takes like a certain intellect to care one, not even just hear it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's definitely like a, a getting into the weeds and appreciating the, the formulaic <laughs> approach well, well, it's, to it's making interesting. things. Yeah. Totally, man. Totally. And, you know, I think about food a lot. I love food. I cook and uh, food is a big part of my life. Uh, you know, I, I exercise to make <laughs> yeah. sure that I can eat whatever the hell I want. Right. But I think about food all the time. And, and like no child came out of the womb, you know, desiring sushi or foie gras or sea urchin. Right. Like these these are, are acquired tastes. Right. And it's the same thing with music. I think like, you know, it, it does take a different kind of person to say like, I want to do the homework so that I can even begin to approach the concept of understanding this so I can enjoy it. Yeah. As opposed to simply like, Oh man, I love the song Basil by uh, 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 Mickey by Tony Basil. Oh, Mickey, you're so fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's a great song. It is. Um, it works. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but it's so, it's so interesting that, that some of this music, it does require an engagement and work and you know, it, it, you do need to meet it on its own terms. And, um, you know, that's a different thing. It's a different thing. But it also reminds me of the fact that, you know, we lived through a period in, in uh, cultural history. We did. I didn't personally. I'm 44. But in the late, what, late 60s, mid to late 60s, early 70s, you know, it was, it was music for the eye. It was how, right. how good it looked on the drafting board, right? It was calligraphy more than it was music. Uh, I'm glad that we've moved away from that. Right. No, that's the food analogy. That's a really good analogy. And I think that that falls into all different subsects of music. But let's let's kind of get caught up. So, Sure. With the music in the family, what did that look like growing up? What was mom into? What was dad into? Well, both of them, neither, neither one was a musician. Um, I have no siblings. No one in my in my whole family was a musician at all, my extended family. Um, my background, I'm of Italian heritage. My, my nana, she came over from Naples. And, you know, I think they were always like singing under the grapevine and, and that kind of stuff. So there was a definite awareness of music in my in my background. I loved oldies growing up. Um, you know, I can remember hearing the Four Seasons at a very young age because you know, Italian, and wow, what great music! Like those vocals and the arrangements and everything. And weird, uh, oddly enough, but weirdly, I I actually got to have a dinner with Tommy DeVito, no way, one of the founding members. Yeah, yeah, yeah members. He he just passed recently, but um, a mutual friend of ours he set it up, and we all went out to dinner. And again, talk about like learning from the source. Like, yeah, you're you're, you're sitting across from a guy who was literally there at the birth of rock and roll. Um, astonishing. Right. Yeah. So anyway, that kind of stuff informed me growing up. Um, my parents didn't have like heavy musical tastes at all. So you know, I kind of heard a, a few things here and there, but I was really like a radio kid. And then um, I remember we had a bunch of records when I was a little boy, you know, Funky Town and, and all this kind of stuff. But, uh, but it was when I really heard the Beatles that things really opened up for me. And I heard them at a very young age, probably four or five, six. And that ballpark was when I really started to get into them. And, um, and yeah, listening to the Beatles in... I think uh, really in particular, the Blue album, you know, they had these two compilations, oh, the Red and okay. the Blue compilations. Yeah. 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 The Blue and, was, and the uh, blue... that was the later, right? The yeah, 67 to 70, right. yeah. Right, right. 
So the first tape of the two blues was, I, I think I must have worn through, you know, what, four <laughs> or five of those as a kid. And I just loved all those tunes, that that late uh, late 60s stuff, I Am the Walrus, Strawberry right. Guilds, Penny Lane. And, and hearing McCartney, hearing those bass parts, these, these wonderful, you know, examples of counterpoint, which I had no idea of, of at the time. Um, just unbelievable playing. And, and that really caught my ear. Uh, and then it was when I heard the Who play that I said, well, this is what I want to do with my life. I heard Entwistle. I heard John Entwistle, the bass player. I heard Pete Townsend. I said, this is, this is it for me. And, uh, and from there, it was, it was pretty easy to keep going. Well, the, the Beatles, man, that first, like that later half there, even in the earlier half, right? But that later half, they dabble in so many different types of music, but they bring all those like elements together, like the counterpoint, the harmony, the songwriting, yeah. and deliver it in such a way that you can now dive into Eastern music if you've never heard it before, because it fits yeah. in the context. I think Norwegian Woods on that. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's actually on the very end of the okay. blue, the second blue tape. And, and I was going to bring up this <laughs> at that point. I love, I love transitional albums. I love to see where things were on the cusp, right? So, right. for example, I think uh, when I was younger, Re um, Revolver, clearly it was an album that I just was obsessed with, right? right. Totally obsessed. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that maybe the more interesting album is Rubber Soul because you're, you're seeing this evolution. You're seeing where they're going to go, and you know where they're going to go, but they didn't right. know where they were going to go at the time, right? Right, and, right. Uh, and, I, and I just love those records. I love albums like that, those transitional times. Um, those are my favorite albums to listen to by artists because you just get this insight into what they're doing that um, you you might not get from the more fully blown material, right? And that's why I love that. I love those that that era I love so much. You see the process, and you see them take the risk. Like when yeah. they first started, it's fresh again, and it's this new thing. You're like, what is that track about? And <laughs> that's the direction they go, maybe. Or they don't. Or how come they never did that again? And like, that that is a really cool, that's a cool, like, uh, appreciation for that. Um, yeah, and, and, and you're right. You can look back on an artist's career and just say, well, that was a path not taken, right? And that's right. always fascinating. What would have happened if they went with Georgia's songs more? <laughs> what would have exactly. happened? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I was talking about this last night with my buddy, my buddy Ed, my buddy Ed Jurdy. We've been we started playing together when we were like, you know, 12, 13 years old. We we um we had a soul band in high school. We're little kids and we're playing like, you know, soul music with a horn section and, and backup singers and stuff. And we we were texting last night and uh I was just saying how much well, first of all, I find myself in a very strange position. I find myself being a guy who vowed that I would never like like the album. Gaucho by Steely Dan. I thought I would never like Steely Dan in the first place. <laughs> I mean, and of right. course now Gaucho is probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest albums of all time. Now I'm going through a similar thing with Fleetwood Mac, where I have finally come around and understood that my opinion on it when I was a kid, I, I wasn't really paying attention to the bigger picture and the and and the genius of the production. Right as a producer, I listen to that stuff. I'm like, oh man, it's it's fab. So it specifically what Ed and I were um, were texting about was. Uh, Christine McVie, and how fabulous her music is, how fabulous her songwriting is, the production, everything, how she's the secret weapon, right? right. And I said to Ed, uh, Ed plays in a band called the Band Heathens, plays in a band um, called Trigger Hippie with Steve Gorman, the, the drummer from the Black Crows. And, okay. you know, we've, we've both been able to kind of live our dreams in a weird way, but right. so we're, we're kind of talking about this, and I'm like, why is it I always love the Dark Horse, right? I love Harrison. I love John Entwistle from The Who. I love Christine McVie. I love Roger Taylor from Queen. I love these kind of like these characters in these bands that they provide you with a different perspective on the on the whole thing. And so like through the lens of a George Harrison, you can see 
this stuff with the Beatles. And and you do wonder, I wonder, what if George got seven songs in the album instead of two, right? It would have been interesting. No, definitely. And like, it's almost like those perspectives are more reachable in a way, right? Like it's, it's hard to imagine being a Paul McCartney or a John Lennon or like these, these just legends, right? Because they're, everything they've done has been so celebrated and hits home so hard. It's easy to think of being around the legend, right? I can handle that. I can handle like trying to, trying to fit in. (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe that's maybe that's like an angle to it, but also it's a cooler kind of story. Like behind behind the the light is the guy operating it, you know, and like the there's equal equal genius behind there too. Yeah, sorry, uh, you you cut out for a quick second there, oh, okay. but yes, I think yeah, no no problem. I think you were just saying like about you know what's what's behind what's behind the screen. I guess I've I've always been interested in what's up on the movie screen. I've always been really interested with what's going on in the projection room, right? Or, or, or even what happened to make this thing happen. To me, what, what goes on under the hood, uh, how the sausage gets made, that is, I just love it. I, I've always loved it. And as a kid, like, I mean, I'm looking at my bookshelf now. I had all these, like, Beatles books and stuff and, um, you know, the process, what was going on inside. And at that point, when I was young, you know, late, mid to late 80s or whatever, that kind of stuff wasn't as omnipresent as it is now, like, we're in the culture of we're, we're documenting the document that we're making of the document, right? It's like these like <laughs> right, triple, right. quadruple metal <laughs> levels of whatever the fuck we're doing. Uh, it wasn't so prevalent back then. And I just was really attracted to it, really attracted to that, that kind of procedural element of, uh, of music making. And I think that was probably as a result of the stuff that I listened to as a kid. Like, you know, I, I, I was less interested in, stuff which was more straightforward. I was more interested in, in why did Queen records sound like that, right? What, how did they make the guitars sound that way? And so it became a process for me of not only am I enjoying what's happening, but I need to decode it. I need to figure it out and then figure out how to utilize it, right? I mean, I did the same thing with cooking. I always try and back engineer recipes. I eat something at a restaurant and then I go home a couple of days, you know, a couple of days later and I'm trying to figure it out. Well, back when we ate in restaurants, but but I'm trying to figure out how to how to recreate it. And uh, I don't know. It's always been a, a fun part of of what I do for me. So, so like, um, when did, what did that like process start when you started making music or was this all before? It was like, how does, how does guitars on Beatles sound different than guitars on Queen? Was that just like the initial thought or were you like Uh, kind of picking at stuff? Yeah. Look, well, first of all, I think I was, I was picking at stuff, but I wanted more information. And then as soon as you begin to ask, well, how is this happening? Then, inevitably you're going to say, well, okay, well then how did it happen with those guys or for that or in in this, in this setting? So there was a big part of that. Also, um, you know, when I was young, I started to play when I was 12 and, you know, I think I had, I played my first gig when I was 13, I think. Um, and I began recording when I was, uh, I think 13, 14 in that ballpark. So to me, the process of capturing sound, was kind of right at the same point of my development as learning how to produce it just afterwards, right? So like, you know, I learned how to make sound and then I learned how to try and capture it and to manipulate it. So to me, those things have always been part and parcel. And I know a lot of people don't have that experience, right? Like they come at it from a different angle um, in classical music, clearly. Like I, I meet young players who have never recorded who can you know, do things technically that I could never even dream of. So it's interesting to me that... Um, you know, I, I'm always attracted to working with people for whom the same is true, where it's about the the process and, and you know, you kind of learn the stuff um, hand in hand growing up. And and so, yeah, I was obviously naturally 
curious about how to reproduce the things I was hearing. And that led me to do a lot of research, a lot of listening. Gotcha. Was it always bass or did you start with guitar? Bass. I started with bass. I mean, I look, I I picked around on piano and keyboards a little bit, you know, when I was a kid, like there was stuff around that I was, I was, you know, mucking about with, but, um, but nothing in any way until I picked up the bass guitar and in, I mean, literally I picked it up and I don't, and I just didn't put it down ever again. It was just a crazy thing. Just, just kept going and going. Was it, was it like, I can handle this or was it like, this makes sense because everything kind of follows around it. Was it like the placement of the instrument that was appealing or was it the feel? Well, I, look, I think pragmatically it was, it was interesting. I, I, I heard the who, like I said, I heard John X whistle and I just, I wanted to do it. Um, pragmatically, I had a ton of friends who had just started to play the guitar and I'm like, oh, okay. well, how come no one's, no one's doing that? And, <laughs> and, and listen, my, my dad taught me a really great lesson when I was very, very young. He, he basically said to me, um, he said a couple, he said a lot of things, but one of, one of the <laughs> great things he said is, uh, is, you know, if you're not afraid to make an ass of yourself, the world is your oyster. And solid. I took, I took that to heart, right? He also told me when you see a line, don't get in it. And that also <laughs> has been a, a guiding, a guiding principle in my life. I mean, cause it's natural. It's human nature, right? right? Like people is to be a line. Oh, I should go get in the line. That's gotta be the way in. That's right. It, it very rarely is that the only way in. And you, you even see it. If you think about traffic lights, right? You know, you know, these, these roads where it's one road, it splits off into two with the light. You, maybe the market is there or whatever. And then, and then it, it, it kind of, you know, goes to two back into one after the light. Next time you go through one of those, see how many people are stacked up in that left lane? not even thinking that there might be another way to kind of get through the light faster. So to me, you know, I always kind of was just trying to go in a a slightly different direction and, and figure out, well, what can I do that feels right? And that I can, um, uh, or I can contribute. Right. And what was really interesting was that at that point, um, in my, my class, right. So this is, uh, we're talking, I went to high school from 1990 to 1994. So just before that, you know, was when we all started to play and, in high school, we had so many kids who were successful um, later in life in terms of in, in musical careers. Ed was there, my buddy Ed Jurdy, um, guy by the name of Will Daly, who, who's had, who has a wonderful career uh, out of Boston. Um, in high school, I started a band that went on to become the band Converge, which is one of the you know more popular kind of hardcore bands. We had a band in our class, the class below is called Pieball, had a wonderful touring career. Um, so there's been a ton of these folks who came out of this environment that, you know, it was a little bit of a crucible in that high school where there was competition, there was collaboration, your friends, your enemies, your, you know, I mean, right. you're, you're, you're doing stuff. And what is weird is that so many people took it so seriously at such a young age that it meant that it projected us and propelled us into these amazing musical careers. It's a very unusual, unusual upbringing. And, and I guess the last thing, you know, about the upbringing that I think was kind of seminal for me was that um, when I went to go take bass lessons, my teacher saw right away that I just was not as facile right away at, uh, you know, the kind of theory aspects of music or reading it or whatever. But I could play. <laughs> it worked. And he's like, you know what, we're going to focus on this because you're going to come back to that other stuff when you want to. And he was exactly right. So I, I learned how to really, really play and play well. And then be able to attach the meaning to it, as opposed mm-hmm. to I learned the meaning and the theory first, and then tried to learn how to, you know, use it. So that's I think those, all those elements they all kind of came together to um, form what I do musically and where I am now. That's it's I think that's one that's the best way to learn, right? Because yeah. as a kid, even or, or being younger, in your teens or whatever, like nothing's more boring than all right, first string. 
Here's the, in your case, the bass clef. Here's the quarter notes. It's cool to see that in context with what you can do and what you want to do. That's way more exciting to be like, oh, yeah. we're going to learn octaves with the Mario theme. Whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I've yeah. taught that one before. Um, <laughs> whatever it is, it makes more sense because you can see what where it goes. And like that, it's kind of like a, the whole language bit, right? I don't yeah. know if you're hip to Victor Wooten's uh, whole philosophy of music, but like uh, um, that you already know how to speak and convey, like learning like how to write it down can come later. No, I'd say that's that's exactly right. Like, I mean, look, there's no one way to do this, and I think the moral of my story, the moral of my career, is that there is literally no one way to do this. It's, it's just it's so unique and so personal um, how people navigate through these spaces. And I guess you know to go back to my kind of Fleetwood Mac comment, right? Um, the older I get, the more experience I get, the more records I've produced. I've, I've produced almost like a thousand records at this point in my career, right? And I know. Uh, <laughs> and and, and the, the more I do, <laughs> the more I realize I don't know jack shit. And the more expansive my view of what musicianship is, what music is. Right. I mean, look, part of my new record okay. here, I'm, I'm deliberately trying to expand, in some sense, what's okay to do, right? I think a lot of people will listen to this record and be like, well, that's completely fucked. Like, you know, you're going from an orchestra piece to a prog rock piece to stuff which really isn't even music, technically. Uh, and I guess, to me, I have really allowed myself to understand that there is a very broad definition of what a composer is, an incredibly broad definition of what a creator is, a musician, what constitutes music. I, I had such clear, bright lines drawn when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, and, and, and thinking, well, no, 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 that can't be correct. Um and I've always bristled when someone says, well, that's not the way you should do it. I remember being in the studio one time with a, a friend of mine, and we have different philosophies of recording. And he said, okay, well, you know, we're, let's do the drums, and then then uh, we should do the bass. I said, why? He said, well, the bass goes on next. I said, why? Well, that's that's when you put the bass on, so that, you know, you can do all the rest on top of it. Why? Well, that's the that's that's the way you do it. Right. Why? I mean, and this kept going on and on and on. So I just reject the, the the viewpoint that there is a set way to do anything. That I think that's beautiful, though, and that kind of goes into like your whole upbringing with it, and that that new stuff comes from doing it in a different way instead of going yeah. left, going right. You know, finding that other way around because it's yeah. all in the in the end. You're going to hear the whole thing put together, right? You're going to eat all the ingredients cooked hopefully or i yeah. guess maybe or at least organized in a way whatever you start with i mean there is that typical like thing but what happens when you do it the other way what happens when you start with the vocals and go backwards oh, <laughs> Besides yeah. rough timing but maybe maybe not depending maybe. on the vocalist a absolutely and you know look now technically speaking you know so much is is possible almost anything is doable you can, you can do anything and I was I was saying this um, the other day to a colleague, a few colleagues actually, uh, that you know constraints and restrictions are wonderful things, and I think a lot of people they they don't like them because you know well we're we live in America we love our freedom et cetera but I mean even just generally speaking constraints people don't want to be constrained anyway we 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 artists we want to be unencumbered but um, if given a giant white canvas blank white canvas with a thousand colors of paint and told go paint your masterpiece versus, you know, I need a 30 second piece of music. I need it at 120 beats per minute. I'd like it in a minor key. And this is the instrumentation you can use. Well, it's a lot easier to do that ladder. 
job, right? right? It's so much easier. And I was saying this in the context of um, of the of the virus of of the pandemic that my company, you know, we're three dozen people in four countries, right? And we're spread out anyway, so we were pretty well positioned when this whole thing happened. But there were certainly things that it became a lot easier to prioritize what not to do. And and I I talk a lot at universities, right? And I talk a lot about what not to do. No one teaches you what not to do, right? But it's it's the negative space that can actually be much more impactful than than the positive space. So for me, uh, I think, you know, the pandemic, it, it put those constraints and kind of restrictions on us, you know, literally, and it made our decision making that much easier. So I find it really fun creatively to impose some of those restraints and to give myself some rules from time to time and to just say, well, this is the logic zone that I'm going to exist in. And if it makes sense in that zone, that's what I want. Um, you know, I guess, you know, we talked about pitch sets earlier, right? Yeah, I was going to say, um, that's, yeah. uh, that's why Schoenberg's appealing because that's exactly what that music is. Exactly. And, and, and look, it's really funny because I'm a big fan of Aaron Copeland, right? And Copeland, of course, has the reputation of being the populist kind of American sounding composer and right. beef. It's what's for dinner whatever. Well, well, Copeland has some crazy, crazy early material. I, I his favorite, uh, my favorite piece of his, maybe one of my favorite pieces of anything period is, uh, his piano variations, which is so complicated and spiky and thorny and weird. And, you know, he explored all these different languages. And so by the mid fifties or early fifties, actually, when, when he was uh, beginning to work on a piano concerto, he, <laughs> he began to use tone rows, which mm. for people who love Copeland, I mean, the idea that Aaron Copeland would use tone row is it's madness. Right. And, and when asked later on in his career, why he did that, he said, I ran out of chords. I think that's a fabulous answer, right? Yeah. I mean, there's only so many ways to do the things that we do. And when you're a guy like Copeland, you've explored quite a bit. Um, you know, you got to figure out a different way to manufacture inspiration. And I think a lot of people have misconceptions about musicians or artists that, you know, like the kind of writer's block thing or or whatever, our creativity, or you're always thinking of ideas or it must be tough with writer's block. Well, you know, it's it's not like this is a passive process, right? It's not like just something comes into my head and then I just have to transcribe it. I mean, maybe for Mozart, that was the case, but, but for most people, like it's about, well, how do I find the motivation to do something creative? How do I find the, the, the kind of allowance that I can use to then go off and do the thing that I really want to do? And, and I don't know about you, but, um, manufacturing creativity is, is a must, right? Uh, it's like exercising. You don't, you don't get in good shape by accident, right? I mean, you <laughs> There's some yeah. conscious decisions that need to be made. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Like I, I, that's for my biggest, like personal practice routine, that's been the hardest thing to try to find a way to practice. Right. So I've, I boiled it personally, I boiled it down to like an hour a day, write something that's the end of it. But like, and just doing that constantly. And it, it's interesting because that's the one thing that you really don't learn to practice through music school or, or, or. Or maybe I guess it depends on the teacher in the lesson, but a lot of times you're going off a script to learn a set, uh, set, uh, uh, set phrases and a way to say thing, and it's expected that you'll find your own way to make it yours. Yeah, and like yeah. I, I agree a hundred percent with what you were saying, and like it's not something like there's that kind of like a mythos that oh, inspirato, it will strike. Right. But, and, and it will, it will, that's life. It will. Life yep. happens, something's cool, it strikes, you, you're, you're over-caffeinated and you're driving and you just start thinking of words and you put them together and now you got a song. But that doesn't happen all the time and it requires work to get good at doing that. So you can, 
so you can do that and like yeah that, so i agree with that 100 percent. that is something that i think is very under uh under perceived and under stressed in just any creative endeavor and uh, i i couldn't agree more man i so i work with this guy by the name of william thomas mckinley okay absolutely incredible composer and a crazy guy right this guy <laughs> yeah. he studied jazz with uh Copeland and Gunther Schuller, pardon me, a classical with Copeland and Gunther Schuller. He played wow. jazz with Stan Getz. He played a jazz. He, he played a gig with Scott LaFaro. I asked him, I said, what? Tom, what was it like to play with Scott LaFaro? He goes, fast. <laughs> and I mean, I, you know, I just laughed so hard. But anyway, Tom, crazy guy, right? And he would have um, two pianos. He, well, he had three pianos in his house. But he, one was like in pristine condition where he would really do his practicing. But the other two were working pianos. And he had them side by side. And he would write all of his scores out by hand, right? Right. So he, he would be working on two pieces simultaneously. This guy was a prodigious talent. And he did have that kind of tape running up above his head where he would just like cut the tape there and then wait and then cut the tape and that's the piece. And I would watch him, you know, crank out a concerto in like a week. Um, and he, he was doing all this crazy stuff. And he'd go from one piano to the other and all you'd hear, you know, you'd hear like a minor nine chord and then maybe like, you know, 15 minutes later, he was, you know, whatever. And then next thing you know, he's, he's, he's got it there. And so even a guy as inspired as that, I, I remember asking him, I'm like, Tom, you know, it's fabulous. Just you, you just throw this stuff out there. And he's like, well, it's not by accident, you know, and what he advised, which I thought was wonderful. He said, Bob, write a rhythm every single day. Just write a rhythm, one bar, one rhythmic pattern, try and do something different every single day. And he's like, it's just a good way to just you know, make sure that you're exercising, make sure that yeah. you're conscious, <laughs> that your consciousness is conscious and it's not, not accidental. It's so funny how many times you listen to records by people where you realize they didn't really pay attention to the macro level fact that all these tunes are in the same two keys and within the same basic bracket of tempo, right? right. <laughs> you know, like it, it's, it's amazing how many artists don't have the little artist on their shoulder looking at themselves saying, no, no, you did that four albums ago. I was talking about this with Dan Brown the other day, right? So right. Dan Brown, the guy, the guy who wrote the Da Vinci Code. And you guys just um, did the, the, the symphony. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wild symphony. Yeah. And we were talking about this, and I, I, was, I cracked a joke about, like, I had to do an interview on the BBC, right? And I said, um, he, he said, well, are you going to prepare for it? I said, nah, I, I never prepare for anything. And I said, well, maybe I should go back and read a couple of my interviews just to be sure, you know, like just to make sure I don't say the same thing that I should have said. And, uh, and, and we, we laughed about it, but it's like, absolutely. You know, any artist, you, you got to go back in the other books and just to refresh your memory and make sure that you didn't use that exact phrase or that exact item, you know, in the more books, the more books you write, the more albums you make, the more there is to be self self-referential about. And the more to, you know, you might accidentally, um, trace yourself or you don't want to do that. Right. Like artistically, you're trying to think about how to be sure you're not not retreading the same ground over and over and over again. And a guy like Dan, of course, who um, creates in such a massive scale uh, and, you know, he knows he gets, he gets such scrutiny. Um, it's important to be sure that you're paying attention to yourself. Uh, and that's something I advise my artists, my, my employees, my collaborators, my friends, just good to have the little version of you on your shoulder watching you. It's always helpful. The great kazoo. It's good to have your own, your own great kazoo. No, hundred. That's solid advice for anyone doing anything, really, because you get so carried away in doing the thing, and especially now when like there's so much content that you're supposed to generate, and you're supposed to put all this stuff out there and carry all these different platforms, and yeah. like uh, now you're your press agent, your booking agent, your manager, and you're doing this all yourself. And if you're not looking at why you're doing it, or in 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 like. The, the re or maybe not why, but just exactly what's being done. I think you get so carried away just putting it out there, you don't realize that you're repeating the same thing. 
you're, oh. you're painting the same sunset. You're a absolutely, and isn't it the worst feeling as a creator when you when you realize that you did that? You know, <laughs> right. like it, it, it happens. It right. happens from time to time. Like, oh shit, you're right. Oh damn it. I mean, I have so much music that I've written over the years. I found I found stuff a few months back, like scores. I found audio tracks. I don't even recall writing this music. You know, 15, 20 years ago, whatever it was. I have no recollection of it. So it is important to keep a good catalog, right? Yeah. But but the, the the question of why is is important. And um, when I have artists come to me and they say, you know, Mr. Lord, I, I would like you to produce my record or whatever. And I, first of all, I say, don't call me Mr. Lord. But <laughs> the second thing, the second thing I, I, I ask is, is generally, you know, why? Why are you doing this? Why would you want to do this? And if they can't give me a good answer, then I'm going to send them back to do their homework. Right. Um, and I advise students on this an awful lot, which is like, you know, it really is important to understand what the what the motivations are for you yourself. You know, and and I mean, it can get a little self healthy at, at points because I, I like to make people understand that you definitely need to be in harmony with your own desires, your own like artistic like desires, basically, because it's like a boat or a ship. Like if if you're off by a fraction of a degree, that can be corrected really rapidly in a short amount of time if you have to. But th that compounds over time. So if you go, you know an hour <laughs> and, and you're off by a fraction of a degree, that's going to be a problem over time. <laughs> and, and, and that happens to a lot of people artistically. So I'm always asking like, you know, why? I, I think I'm also always asking, well, what's the definition of success? How, how would you define down the road when we're looking back on this project together and holy shit, man, that really worked. Well, well what is it? Because everybody's needs are so different. So I have artists who, you know, they want to get interviewed on the radio or they want to get um, they want to get more performances or they want to uh, get their music used in a licensing capacity or they want to sell records or whatever it is. Right. But unless I ask them, unless we actually have that that conversation um, explicitly, then there's no way that I can I can fly the plane and get to where we want to go if I don't know where we're going. Exactly. And 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 I think, you know, for people who aren't CEOs or who aren't producers or who aren't, you know, uh, putting out whatever it is, eight records a month, you know, 10 records a month. Um, you still have to ask that question of yourself when you are making anything. And I, I just, I really feel strongly about that, that so many people, they just glide through life and they're not actively engaged. And life is, is something which is being done unto them as opposed to them doing life. Right. And I know it's a lot easier when um, you're a guy like me and you know, you, you're in a, a socioeconomic bracket that allows it and, and all the rest. Um, I'm, I'm hyper-conscious of that, and specifically, you know, in the classical music world, for example, where so many people have not been given opportunity. But that's why I do what I do, is because I want to help to make those opportunities for other people other than myself. And, you know, to activate the people who maybe have been letting life do them as opposed to the other way around. That's, it's, it's, it's interesting how many people claim that like if we're if you're looking at a guy holding a hammer how many people claim they're the hammer like they're the yep. tool of someone else's actions and it's a yep. lot easier i think for the you, the person in general to be like well i i was late because blank you know what i mean the, it lets off responsibility and it allows that coasting to feel okay and it, it's really it's it's a lot more work it's a lot more work to analyze and jump in and figure out why you're doing for you know what i mean just even the job you're at, why you stuck with it. And, um, yeah. or, okay, you want to do a thing, but how can you use where you're at to get to do that thing? Like, I don't, there's, there's probably a way to find out how to make your, your, uh, career as a classical, classically trained, uh, cellist work when you're working at Target. You know what I mean? There's got to be some way, but yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's taking that like mindset and figuring it out and like asking those hard questions. 
and uh, it, it, yeah, yeah, and it, it's well, weird, weird, almost like with in, in to some degree, uh, kind of going back to thinking about writing a rhythm every day and always being aware of coming up with a fresh thought or be saying something new. So much of uh, like a certain style of playing becomes um, small talk in a way. And that's okay. Yes. You need some to engage into a, a larger conversation. You need the the cliche licks. You need the Indiana bebop to be able to play over the changes. But like, it, a lot of times it just stops there. So so much of that that questioning and that higher thinking is so important. But it's also really tricky to get in that mode and be okay with like. I guess that kind of goes back to the initial creating process. Be okay with coming up with a bunch of shitty shit. <laughs> oh so, yeah, man. you know, and just oh yeah, oh yeah, oh god. The, the, I mean, I I think you have to. Like, right. If you're not putting out shit, then you're then you're doing something wrong. I mean, like, you know, Tom McKinley, the guy I was talking about earlier. I, I tell you, Tom's output was uneven. Um, not every piece that Tom did was brilliant. Not every piece that Beethoven did was brilliant. I mean, you know, a lot of them stink. <laughs> and uh, and it's important to remember that, like, you know, it's it's just it's a numbers game, and yeah. it's. I got to go through a whole lot of no's before I get to yes, no matter what it is, what, whatever we're talking 100%. about. Oh, pe- man. People, people are fundamentally uncomfortable with the concept of sales to a, a very great extent. And I think everybody is selling all the time because selling is simply persuading people to do something. And, and by the way, it doesn't mean convincing. It just right. means making an argument, presenting an argument and letting them make up their own mind. If I have to convince anybody to do anything, it's not real. So I don't want to ever, I never mm. want to do that. I mm. never try and get people to do shit they don't want to do. Right. I want to just give them the evidence and then they say, yes, no, maybe so. And, um, and I just want to, it sounds so crazy, right? But uh, I really like to make people laugh. I, I, I like to just give people a smile. I like to do things that feel good and that's a good thing because it makes me feel good. It makes them feel good, which makes me feel good, which makes them feel good. Right. And I see nothing wrong with that at all. No. <laughs> and it's just, it's funky that a lot of people are definitely in our, in our market, our world, our, our musical world. A lot of people are thinking, well, um, I just want to get the gig. I want the gig. I want the gig. I want the gig. Okay. So you get the gig. What happens? You can't get any people into the venue because you don't have any fans in Salt Lake City, in, in, in Salt Lake City Utah or in right. wherever. I mean, it happened to my band. Right. Like we would work so hard to get into great venues, but only to find out that, you know, you have actually because you're in both sales and service, you have actually managed to, uh, you know, to really kind of screw the pooch because you built an expectation that you then could not manage and meet and exceed. So it's all these little kind of like self games that we need to be aware of and and what we're doing and how we're doing it creatively, artistically, um, on the business side, on the on the musical side. And just be sure that you're looking at both ends of the equation. And and that's called empathy. It's also called smart business, right? Right. right. Um, and, and those two things converge in that in that way where it's like, you know, I'm always trying to think about that. Like what's the what's the bigger picture and and always trying to do the right thing, which is um critical. And and it's amazing. Like so at my company, we've had the same management team, same half a dozen folks for 10 years. I don't know many companies at all that have a team that's been unchanged and works well together and is moving forward together for that long. That's it's in in, in the the musical field, right? Right, right, right. Um, And the thing that's so awesome is that when you have a hive mind like that of everybody who is highly ethical, highly attuned, as I have tried to be my entire life, uh, highly attuned to making sure that you're thinking what's going on on the other end, what the other person is feeling, and that you are making sure that you are, are attending to that. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of artists that we work with, and we're all 
always trying to think about how to be sure that we're thinking about what's going on on their end of the line. And especially now in a pandemic, right, where it's so hard to become disattached, so easy to become disattached from people and so hard to really get insight into what's happening um, because you don't have the back channeling. You can't sit in front of somebody and see their body language and and feel what's what what they're saying. You know, it's not the words that people are saying. Like there's a bigger message there that we're losing by not being face to face. So we're always trying to think about that. And um, and it's just amazing in the music industry, the reputation of the music industry, number one, coming out of the kind of like, you know, the, the wild west of the pre-digital era. Uh, and now into this much more structured thing, you know, it, it's nice to see that some of that bad business behavior is, has gone away. But I think it's really incumbent upon people to be sure that they're not only thinking about how they can get the gig and what it means to them, how they can, you know, get that particular deal and how it benefits them. It's, it should be, it should be mutually beneficial. My pop said, unless both parties feel a little bit of pain in a contract or in a deal, it's not the right deal. Because you yeah. both should be you both should be bound and working together towards a greater goal. No one should be making out better than the other guy so, so much so that they're like, yeah, I really took that guy for a ride, right? Right. That's right. not good. That's that's not, not the way all. it should be. Yeah. Wow, your pops had some good lines, man. <laughs> He's my, my my dad is a guru uh who has taught a whole lot of people over the years. And um I was <laughs> I was at a uh I was at a wake for a friend of mine and a former employee of his, uh, his, what this guy's wife. And I, I knew this guy from way back. Right. right. And little, from the time I was a little kid, I'd answer the phone. My dad's business calls would come in and my dad started taking me on business trips when I was like, you know, five, six, seven years old, put me in a little suit, make me sit there and listen to the job <laughs> interviews yeah. because he knew that I was, yeah. you know, probably going to spiral off into something crazy and artsy. Right. Right. Uh, and, and so anyway, so I go to this wake and, um, and I walk in and it was a crew of these guys. I saw their faces and I remembered their faces. I couldn't remember their names, but these were the guys that used to work for my dad way back when at one of these companies, you know, my dad was, I think, um, ahead of his time in, in his era, people would just, you know, stay at a job for whatever, 40 years and retire, get to go watch and you're done. My dad was bopping like gig to gig to gig every few years and going in, you know, selling, going crazy and moving on to the next thing. That's so um, important though. Yeah, I mean, which, which is so what we do now. Right. Yeah. But anyway, I, I walk into the into the wake and uh, I see these faces and the look on their faces, it was shock, absolute shock. One guy walked up to me and he goes, as I live and breathe, Bob Lord, you have not aged a day. Well, my dad's name is also Bob Lord. I look a lot like my dad. I said, Anthony, no, no, I'm, I'm not that Bob Lord. I'm the son. It was so funny, right? <laughs> but these these guys all, all said... Um, they all said that my dad was, you know, was the greatest teacher that they ever had in their careers, the greatest manager that they had, because, you know, my dad is, was about other people and my dad was, about, it is about thinking about other people. And, uh, I learned from the best. Let's put it that way. Definitely. Well, that's, that's huge, especially in that it shows in your success, those lessons paid off and <laughs> continue to pay off. And it, yeah. And they, and they ripple throughout my company. They, they, they ripple throughout the whole staff. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he, uh, he's not an employee of my company. He's been retired for a long time, but, but he's, he's involved all the time, helping out and giving advice, which I love. It's, it's fabulous. That's awesome. And yeah. I, I bet that on the trade-off, I bet he's so stoked to be able to do that. You know what I mean? Like it just, it's, it, it sounds like just throughout your upbringing that be able to give back and lighten the moment and get the giggles going before you hit record and, and to bring food and make everyone feel good is so it makes everything so much easier. If everyone's in a better mindset than coming in, Oh fuck, I got to really knock this out. We're paying top dollar for the time here. 
And like, yep. you know, the, that pressure is there and understanding that and being able to make it a light moment, making the, 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 the lights a little rose tinted. It's so important. It makes it so much easier and makes that connection. People, I imagine, keep coming back because of that. That is 100% true. I think environment, atmosphere, all these things are paramount, paramount. This is my philosophy as a producer, right, is to make a good space, to make a fun space, a safe space, a space where you are giving your artists explicit permission to fail, right? So I'm an only child, CEO, bass player, composer. <laughs> I could be a complete fucking egomaniac and, and, and be in my own head all the time. But, you know, um, it would be easy for me. So what I learned in the course of my kind of evolution as a CEO over these last 13 years, which, you know, I, I've never I've I've never been wheeled into a company at a C level. Right. I built my own C level. So it's a very different experience. And um, what I learned is that unless I give people active, explicit permission to fail, I have not done my duty as a manager. You need to say you can fail. It's OK. There's nothing that you can fuck up that I cannot unfuck. Right. That's that's what I, I actually say to my staff. And <laughs> and it's it's interesting psychologically the difference when you when you give that permission to people. Right. And I can think of a really great example in the making of this record. Um, so the drummer in this record is a guy named Jamie Perkins. Jamie plays in a band called The Pretty Reckless. And they, they were just up at the top of the, the Billboard charts um, a few weeks back. They put out a new record. They're, they're doing an amazing job. And uh, this is a, a band led by a woman by the name of Taylor Momsen. Taylor. She had an acting career. She was in the Grinch movie when she was a little girl. She was in TV oh, show okay. Gossip Girl. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and now she's she's spun into this this great music thing, right? Right. And um, and Jamie's got a great gig, and he's great for it. He's great at it. And you know, what an amazing feeling to go travel country to country back in the pre pre virus days, and uh, and you know, and, and play in these you know many thousand person theaters, and and opening up for Soundgarden and, and whatever, Sick. like all this yeah. crazy shit. It's it's amazing, right? Right. Um, but it's difficult too. It's a job. When I first met Pete Townsend, Pete Townsend, the first words he said to me were, I have a day job. It's called the who and it sucks. I want to be, do I want to be doing what you're doing. Right. And, and in that, mo in that moment, my head just goes, oh, that's what? the same shit, different level. Right. right. Like, and so with Jamie, um, so of course, I think a lot of people will look at a guy like Jamie Perkins and say, you know, this is the ideal gig. Well, number one, listen, it's really important. No, it is the ideal gig, but it's also a job. And, and there are things in everybody's world like that are hard and, and difficult. The grass is always greener kind of concept. Uh, remember, remember, like it, it, that boat looks wonderful. It's a beautiful yacht. But guess what? If you got a yacht, you got yacht problems, right? I mean, it's, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it's what happens. It's right. part and parcel. So with Jamie, you know, when I brought him in to do um, the tracks and record, like I really believe in a, a really fun environment in the studio. And, and I want to be sure that like, it's the right space. So he came in and I think we were recording uh, Yo Soy Miguel, which is I think the second or th third track on the record, something like this. And um, it's a tune that I wrote actually, because to, actually the whole story of this is really fascinating because it touches on something you said earlier, right? So the inspiration, after right. I talk to you, I'm going to, I'm going to go have lunch with my, my buddy, Tony, there's a, a deck outside in, in Portsmouth here in New Hampshire in the water. We're going to go out there. We're going to get a beer. Uh, Tony was over at my house. Um, I don't know what, quite a while ago, probably a couple of years ago at this point. And he just, you know, I started kind of like humming something and I'm going, boom, 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 boom. And, and Tony just said the words, yo soy Miguel. Okay. And I said, holy shit, that's funny. And I just started <laughs> to chant it and chant it and chant it. Well, I had oh, to go cool. to Cuba. I think it was like at the end of that week or a couple of days after that, I was going right, to Havana right, for, right. for work. Right. And, uh, and, and we're going to record down in Havana. And I just, the thing came into my head, like, 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 you know, Athena coming from the head of Zeus, it was fully formed. It was in there, the structure, everything. I'm like, 
holy shit. And I just, I went into my studio in my house and I, I banged out the demo for this whole thing, right? So I go down to Cuba and I'm like, I said to a couple of my staff, one of the, my, my buddies, guys are down there. I'm like, listen to this track. What do you think? And they laughed and they're like, that's pretty fucking funny. And I said, why is it funny? I don't, I don't know why, but they're like, you know, it is. So I realized it was like one of these tracks, like, it, you know, it, it's, it's a novelty track. It makes no sense. It doesn't mean anything really. And, uh, there's no, no broader structure here, but it's just a fun piece of kind of sugary, upbeat pop music. So, right, it's anyway, catchy. Could, it's catchy. Yeah, right. It's a great right. way to roll into. Uh, well, let's kind of dive into Playland Arcade since we're, we kind of snaked our way into it. Um, well, well, actually, let me let me just finish this one thing because yeah. it's exactly about the record. It's, and it's how this record kind of really came to be because this is the first first track that we ended up ended up doing together for the record. So I get Jamie in the studio, and I say, "All right, you've heard the demo that I recorded before I went to Havana." You, uh, you, you've heard the whole thing, go in there and go play. So Jamie, he goes in and he goes and he plays and he plays, he plays what I, I had. Like he played what was on the demo and he came back in. He's just like, what do you think? He's like, you know, I, I tried to do exactly what you did. And I said, it's, it's perfectly fine. It's exactly what's in the demo. I said, but it's not at all what I want. I want, I want you. I, I want to hear, I want to hear you play. I want, I want Jamie Perkins on this. Like, I don't want the guy that has to do what's right for the song. Right. Cause that's your day job. <laughs> I want the yeah. Jamie Perkins who's going to go, go ballistic all over this thing. I said, Jamie, go back in there. I said, I, I, I want you to play like a petulant child. I want you to play like a, like a spoiled petulant child. He looked at me. He's just like, you want me to play like a spoiled petulant child? I said, yes. He said, that's the stupidest production direction I've ever been given in my life. I said, perfect. Go now, go and do it. Go in there. Play like a, play like a baby. And he went in. And that's what he did. He played hard. He played angry. He he did fills. You know, like I mean, he's he's knowingly playing fills across the stereo field that go differently than you would think. And it was like, you know, I said to him, "Okay, go do the thing that you're not allowed to do in any other setting, and and have fun." And I think as a producer, that's the best gift that you can give any musician. It's the best gift you can give any collaborator is to say, "Safe space. Don't be afraid to fail. It doesn't matter if you make an ass of yourself. Just." Just go be you, right? And uh, and I'm so glad that he did that all over this whole record. And I think I think you're hearing Jamie being Jamie on this album, and I'm really happy with it. And it's tight. That's that's oh, that's it's so interesting because you go into the gig, right? And you are trying to fit the need for the person, and normally you can't go in and be like, "Well, I'm working on this type of whatever," like and throw it in there because you're trying to, you know, you get in the headspace that I'm here to do the job. I'm here to be the best uh, the country uh, sound guitar player I can for this record. So that's all I'm going to give you. I'm not going to I'm not going to do any of the not any of the bebop runs or whatever. I'm going to stick to what you're expecting. And yep. to be allowed to do that makes it so it makes it unique and allows that person to be them. That's that I I agree 100%. I think that is the best the best like leeway you can give someone as a producer. It it, it really is and that's it's so uh, cool. It's a it's a good technique. It's a good strategy, but it's also the right thing to do if you're a certain type of person, right? If right. you like, I, I I guess what I feel about this record is I consciously made a decision to, as I said to you before earlier on in the, in the conversations, like to kind of expand the definition of what these things are, what this is, of what composition is. Of like, if I don't play on it, and if I am merely giving a theme to a player, and then the then the track is a rhapsody on that theme. Could I have been said to have composed the piece? Did I co-compose the piece? Um, you know, if I created the conditions for something to occur, what does that mean? What's the definition of that, right? And uh, and I'm I'm really fascinated by that because again, like as a CEO, 
my job has become much less hands-on than it was 13 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago. It's much more working through others, which I'm not, I'm not a natural manager. I, I'm not trained. I'm an English major. I have no training in business. I have no training in music. You know, I, I, it, it's just a different way of doing things. And, and this record was very much my, my embracing of that kind of concept. You know, Dreadnought, my band, we've, we've been around for 25 years. We have a new record coming out this summer. Um, and we are players, right? right. We get in a room together. It's we tight. play. We write tight. We compose. We work. It's, it, it's the product of our hands and our brains in kind of real time. And I just, I felt like um, my experience in classical music, my experience in jazz, in, in, in world music, whatever, like, you know, I'm in the studio with my arms folded and I'm making sure that this whole orchestra is doing artistically what, what we want to have done. That's a very different experience than being in, in the studio with your drummer and your guitar player and you guys are, are layering on tracks like, like Queen, right? So I kind of wanted to go with that, that more classical approach to producing this and thinking about what it means to make something which is um, really, truly diverse. And, uh, and also, I think, to kind of write a little love letter to my, my beach down here, right around the corner from where I live. It's my, my hometown beach called Hampton Beach. And this album is very much um, a portrait of that boardwalk, uh, right down to the fried dough and the ski ball and the Playland Arcade, which is literally where I've been spending my, my time and, and during the summer since I was a little kid. So, um, yeah, that's what the record's all about. It's beautiful. If it, like listening through it, it's like a narrative. You're going past all the different like stands and seeing and all the sights and sounds. Like it, the, the jump from Yoiso Moiguel, I can't talk today, to, to like lobster roll. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it's a it's it's what you would see going through that. And I think it's beautifully executed. And it's an interesting concept to touch upon. Like it, it, it does even you made the conditions for it to happen. Like, yeah. I, but when a farmer makes the conditions for corn to grow, is it he made the corn, right? Right, right. Is that the case? Yeah, is exactly. It? Well, well it's like that whole it's like that whole joke in the Avengers or, or one of those Marvel movies where they're like talking about Thor's hammer and they're like, well, it go, it goes up in an elevator. So is the elevator worthy? I mean, like it's you know what what is surrounding <laughs> what is surrounding this this um this kind of concept, right? And uh. And yeah, and look, and it absolutely is a narrative. I definitely tried to structure it so that it ebbs and it flows, and there's arcs and peaks and valleys, and um, in interest. And you know, for me as a listener, I love being disoriented. Actually, I love being disoriented generally. <laughs> uh, when I travel, and I love to travel, and I miss it, and and we'll be getting back to it soon, I'm sure. But you know, I'm lucky that I get to go to so many different countries for my job, and I make a deliberate effort to get as lost as I fucking can whenever I go to a city because it helps my brain map map where I am and what I'm doing. Right. And, and this was especially fun in the pre GPS days. Yeah. <laughs> when, well, when you, when, right. <laughs> like when you get a map and you got to try and figure it out. Um, and I like to do that. I like it when that's done to me artistically. Um, I, you know, you probably can tell by listening to my stuff. Like I don't particularly, uh, adore convention. So I like to be surprised. And that's what I tried to do here was to try and create a little bit of disorientation, a little bit of surprise, um, just some different colors and different kind of, yeah, just, uh, reflections and, and structures so yeah i'm glad you dig it I'm glad you no, dig it's it. awesome um did that kind of process come from like jumping from the rock world to the classical world like in kind of like nav like navigating from far but being able to like with with like um dreadnought like these pieces those songs all go like a mile a minute into these different pieces right like i feel like one of your songs in there goes through so many different changes that yeah. that disorientation is there but it's 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 driven to a point, and I'm like listening to these records. I'm like, as a rock band, okay, how do you 
how do you write that? Do you write that out? Like, how do you agree upon that? Like, it makes sense in the classical world or in this project where you're kind of like overseen and you yeah. can you can make that environment to make something disorienting and then lead it to somewhere where it's like, okay, now we're at the, the, the you know, the, the landing point. And yeah. like, but from behind, you know, kind of like behind the scenes, that seems way more like capable than driving, you know, playing the, being in the machine. Like, um, I guess, so my question is, I guess, how, like, from, did it come from, like, that disorientation or that comfort with disorientation? Did that come from, like, Dreadnought years, or did that come from working um, and foreseeing, like, all these classical records? That's a good question. Uh, well, boy, my pre-Dreadnought life is shorter than my 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 post dreadnought <laughs> life, which is really bizarre to think about, right? I've been in, I've been in the, that band longer than half my life. Uh, and... So before that, I certainly was uh, a seeking listener. I, I definitely did not do what everybody else did. When I was a kid, you know, when, when Motley Crue hit and Guns N' Roses hit back in the 80s, everybody was listening to that. I was listening to The Police. I was listening to The Who. I was listening to The Beatles. Uh, I definitely didn't follow that stuff. So I was always trying to kind of listen to some other stuff, you know. Um, so I would say, yeah, I've been a restless listener, period. Um, but I think obviously the, the experience with Dreadnought coupled with my, my classical work, but also coupled really with my custom audio work, which I started, um, kind of, uh, before the classical side really was, you know, writing music for independent films, writing music for, um, for ad agencies. Hey, I wrote music for pornographic films, softcore porn, you know, make good, and I made good money doing it. Nice. <laughs> nice. So, I mean, I, I, I've worked literally very, very hard to be able to understand exactly what every project needs, even porn. And 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 I think uh, all those experiences kind of have come together for me, uh, you know, on this record. And and I think what's funny about the record is like as a record, I wanted it to do what some dreadnought songs do in one piece of music, right? I wanted to kind of expand and just pull that apart and blow it out and be like, what does it mean if it happens over 40 minutes instead of four? Right. right. I mean, like there's some tracks. Um, there's a track on uh, our album, hard charging from 2017. There's a track called slave girls on there. And you know, that's like eight tunes in one. I mean, we have, we generally have more tune, uh, more ideas in one tune than I would say most bands have in a whole record. And it's crazy. And like, you know, I, I can think of one tune on that one. Um, taking a ride with the fat man, for example. Right. Right. So right. this, this cut on, on this dreadnought record, um, it, it was so funny because you're asking about like being in the machine. Right. And, and, and what's it like to be behind the curtain up in the projection room? What's it like to be on the stage or in the machine, whatever. Um, you know, that one, we, uh, I had a, a melody in my head that is the, the book ending of, of that piece. It's a little melody at the beginning and, and comes back at the very end. We had just the one basic, uh, you know, odd meter progression, which you one might call the quote unquote verse. And that we did that for um, a project way, way, way back when that was never like officially released in, a, in a, an official capacity. And um, I remember sitting here at this exact seat with Justin sitting, you know, just over me, uh, uh, a few feet away from me. I think we had a gig the night before he slept over and um, we use each other as tools, right? Justin and, and me and Rick will use each other as tools. And so that particular one, I think, you know, Justin and I wrote that with me doing the, the kind of mushing of the sled. Um, we wrote that in an hour. It was just like everything. And, and I love doing that type of drill. I, I, you know, Will Daly and I, we, we did this in the studio recently, uh, a couple of years back when we did a, um, a, a track. And as a vocalist, Will's a wonderful recording vocalist. And we just sat there and we just ran drills, man. You know, 90 minutes, boom, do it again, boom, do it again. Try it like this, boom, do it again. 
And, and it's so much fun to do that, right? That's, that's my favorite part of music making is, is being in the studio. I think I like it even more than playing gigs. I, I miss being in the studio much more than I miss uh, being on stage, that's for sure. Well, it's, it's cool because you can analyze it later. You know what I mean? On stage, yeah. it, it happens. It's cool to get that experience and you live in that moment, but then you move on. To be able to hear back and be like, oh, I, I did enjoy doing that. I, and I enjoyed listening back. I, <laughs> yeah. I, it wasn't this, uh, the, everyone wasn't lying to me like I tell myself they are. They enjoyed it because I enjoyed it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, exactly. And, and it's a good feeling. It's a great feeling. Ah, that's, it's super interesting. Like, um, so when did Dreadnought come? Like, we kind of, we kind of glossed over it because this, uh, um, but like, um, when did you start Dreadnought? Uh, 1996. So, uh, we started a band back then. We were a larger band. We had more members <laughs> and we were, you know, very much like a college band. And yes, yeah, so we started back in 96. My buddy, Ed, that I told you about earlier on today, the guy, uh, in band of heathens and trigger hippie. So we had a band in high school, myself and Ed, I went to UVM, Ed went to UNH. And, uh, and after a couple of years, you know, I gave him a call and, you know, we'd see each other all the time at the holidays and we kept in touch all the time. Obviously we'd visit each other. And, uh, and, I remember saying, hey, listen, uh, I'm not having much luck musically up here. How's it going for you down there? He's just like, meh. I said, you know, what if I transferred? And he said, um, I'm not going to ask you to do that, but if you did, that'd be cool. So I transferred down to UNH, and uh, we started playing together, the two of us. And right away, within about a month or two, we ended up um, grabbing a few other people who were interested in playing, a drummer that we met named Rick, who's, of course, still the drummer in Dreadnought. And, uh, and yeah, and we just kind of started to go. And the band evolved a little bit from there. We um, we. Justin kind of came into the picture in, I think, 1998 or so. Um, you know, he, he had his own band, and we kind of merged the groups. And, and then it ended up being distilled down to just me, um, Justin, and Rick in about the year nine, uh, 2000 was, was about that time. And, uh, yeah, the three of us have, have been, been cranking it out ever since. And, you know, we, we don't do what we used to. We all have day jobs now. <laughs> and, uh, and so we don't get out on the road and, and tour, but, um, but we're, we're still putting out records. Like I said, we got this new one coming out after my solo album and, uh, yeah. And it's, it's wonderful, man. And the thing is, I think, um, having partners for so long. And again, like I said about my company, having the same management team for so long, you reach a level of comfort, uh, that is, is very high and, and a level of, um, of collaboration where very little needs to be said and you can do the thing that you do and you don't need to spend a lot of time thinking about it, which is a great feeling. Well, yes, you're not worrying about these personal, these interpersonal communication issues. You know, this person, you know what they need to hear and how to approach them. And it's a group effort because now it's part of everyone's lives ingrained. And it's, I think that speaks miles on just how you handle running a, a company and a business and a band like that. I mean, a band is kind of a, a business, yeah. Um, yeah. When did so in 2000, Jeff came into the picture, right? That's when you guys like started recording as a three piece. Yeah, uh, Justin. So we did. Um, so we did. Let's see. We did one, two. Well, I mean, we uh, did two. Um, Jeff from a Fed, a Red Red Fez. Oh, Red Fez. Oh, forgive me, Jeff. Oh, Jeff Feinberg. Oh, yeah, man. So Jeff Feinberg. Um, Jeff is my my very best friend in the whole world. We are brothers. Uh, we became best friends when we were one year old. Our parents were, were walking us around the same neighborhood and they started to talk and the two of us just started to like reach out towards each other. It's like, like a fucking movie, right? Uh, he's, he's the, the most unbelievably great guy. And, um, and so Jeff and I, we started a band in high school, the band that went on to become this group converge. Okay. And so, uh, so Jeff, he went up to school up in McGill in, uh, in Canada and, and he continued to, to play and to perform and, and finally got out of it, um, after a little while. And around that time, you know, we were talking and he was just like, 
you know, hey, listen, I, I want to get back involved something, you know, in, in, in the business and I want to be doing stuff. And now he had heard me and Rick and Justin play and he, he's heard everything I've ever done. I've heard everything he's ever done. Right. I mean, we're, we're, we're best buds. And, um, and so he was like, yeah, man, like this new record that you're putting together. It's so cool. He's like, well, what, you know, what if, what if we put together a label so that I, I could help you to get the record out and, uh, and to do some of that under the, under the hood work, um, while you guys play. And I said, hell yeah, man. And, uh, so yeah, so we made this album, the American standard in, in 2001. And I would say that like in our own limited world, you know, dreadnought being in this kind of weird prog ish market, uh, even though we're very much not like capes and, and stuff like that. Uh, it's not our kind of prog, you know, we're, we're much more of an American kind of group. Right. And, uh, and that, that turns off a lot of those guys who want the more kind of dream theatery style. But anyway, so, um, so we, we put out uh, this record in 2001, but before it came out, we, um, it was actually in the summer of 2001 when we were wrapping up the record. That was when we actually opened up for John Entwistle Who, uh, to Who. Uh, that was in June of 2001. So, I mean, like, literally, I have lived my dreams, right? I got to play with my, with my idol. I got to do, co-produce a record with my idol, Pete Townsend. I mean, Jesus Christ, man. You know, I'm a lucky guy. But, yeah. but, but anyway, so, so we're, we're, we're making this record. And I got this album cover from these guys called the Brothers Hildebrand, right? The Brothers Hildebrand are these wonderful fantasy artists. If you've seen those old 70s Lord of the Rings calendars, that's the Brothers Hildebrand. And and I, I guarantee you, you'd recognize yeah, your stuff. Yeah, no, gotcha. gotcha. And uh, yeah, and they, they like did an album cover for uh, Black Sabbath, stuff like this. Anyway, Sick. Um, there's this uh, this old book that my buddy, who was a former member of Dreadnought, my buddy Ryan, he gave to me. And it was with the Brothers Hildebrand. And in the back of the book was this one photo or th this one painting called Flagface. And, and I looked at it and I'm like, this is unbelievable. And I researched it. Like every other piece in the book had been used and, and was, you know, in some other setting, but no one had ever done anything with this piece flag face. So I, I cold call these guys. I just called up, you know, whatever, and pick up the phone. And, uh, and, and a guy picks up the phone. I said, hi, I'm, I'm looking for, for uh, Greg Hildebrand. And he says, yeah, I'm Greg. And it's like, you know, chewing, <laughs> chewing on a sandwich. And, uh, and I told him, I said, hey, listen, I really want to use this, you know, for my, um, for my album. He goes, well, okay, well, we'll send me the music and I'll let you know what I think. So I sent him the music. He wrote back and he was just like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like, <laughs> What what is this? <laughs> so anyway, we he said absolutely use it. So we used it. Now we're about to go on the road. Jeff is you know is going to going to help us out, supporting us and helping get packages out. And, and you know I'm doing the booking. I'm the booking agent and all this stuff. And um, we're we're about to release the record. And September 11 happens. So we have a record in the can with this flag face. Which for anyone listening, um, it's a guy with his arms crossed and a farmer's hat on and a big old American flag stuffed in his mouth and covering his face. <sighs> and, you know, we had to make a decision. We had to say, uh, uh, what does it say? We don't even know what it says now. Like, we have no clue. And we just said, fuck it. And we, we plowed ahead. And it was so interesting when that record came out to see all the reviews and all the commentary. Um, people really read into it what they wanted to read into it. It was a Rorschach test, right? Mm. This This striking image. And um, when we were out on the road, we went from... Um, Boston to Salt Lake City-ish area in back over the course of, I think, the better part of a month. Uh, and it was um, over the holidays, too. So it was like November, December. I think we did two big stretches on the road at that point. And, um, and yeah, wow, the response we got from people in clubs, it was so interesting having people come up to us after the gig, you know, explaining what they think that that cover meant. Uh, it was wild. But anyway, that, that record, I'm still super proud of that record. Um, I think we might mix it a little bit differently if we did it today, but sure. uh, but wow, it was it was a fun record to make. In that one track, the first track in that album, Ballbuster, 
that's that's been one that's had a nice lifetime. A lot of people still dig that tune and enjoy it. So yeah, it's gratifying. What was it? What was the reaction to that? Was it mixed? Was it was it kind of combative? Like, I think everybody felt it reinforced what they already felt. Okay. It, some people felt yeah. it was patriotic. Some people felt it was critical of George W. Bush. Some people felt, you know, it was really interesting. Um, so, no, we didn't have a lot of people who were like, you know, what do you guys think you're doing? You know, it wasn't that at all. It was uh, it was much more people saying like, yeah, this it's really interesting and it supports what I believe. <laughs> it's funny. Wow. And that so like working with Jeff, was that kind of like an intro to be able to handle like because he, he, he was kind of handling more of like some business end of it. You've been doing the music bit for a while. Did that help with going into Parma? Well, I think it was more like just kind of offloading some of this, some of the stuff that I was already doing. Okay. Um, okay. The, to, to Jeff and, uh, and, you know, having him help out and just be able to help us keep our nose above water. Um, Parma was a really different kind of, uh, uh, lineage and experience. And, and it was definitely an outgrowth of, um, you know, kind of where I wanted to go artistically, where I was, I was feeling, you know, I, I, I guess once I heard Stravinsky, once I heard, um, Patricia, actually, that absolutely changed my life. And, and Aaron Copeland's music absolutely changed my trajectory. And I said, I, I really want to do this. You know, this is something I want to sound like. I want to incorporate that in my own, my own music, but I want to, I want to work on this. And, uh, and yeah, and William Thomas McKinley also, uh, that, that guy I mentioned earlier, huge influence on me. Um, and, you know, with Parma, I think it's such a great company. I'm so proud of the, the work we do. I'm so, so proud of the staff. I mean, such great folks and, in good people and uh, our artists are, are, are fabulous. And I think, you know, look, a lot of, um, a lot of people, classical is very misunderstood. A lot of people don't get it. A lot of people um, are made to feel bad about it. I think a lot of people are, are, are feel that classical music is looking down their nose at you. And my goal is to absolutely destroy that paradigm. I, I do not want anybody to feel bad about engaging in art. I don't, I don't think anybody should be made to feel guilty about clapping between movements in a concert. Right. That shit should go. Right. <laughs> we, we are we are we are past that point. Thank you very much. And and I think that's what we're really what we really tried to do. So like it's an outgrowth of me being who I am. I think. And um, if you think about who I am, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a lead guitarist. I'm not a lead vocalist. I'm not a violinist. I'm not a soul piano soloist. I'm a bass player. So it's this kind of more nested structure of things. And I have a different viewpoint. I have a different perspective. And then coming to classical music from outside of it, as opposed to being a product of it, um, of its system, right? A product of its educational system, a product of it. I think it's made my company very, very different. And, and that experience going from being on the road and knowing exactly what it's like in 2001 to have to figure out via a dial-up modem how the hell we're going to get <laughs> to the next gig because we don't know, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. From there to, to, to now, it makes a whole ton of sense because it was all a logical progression. And I, I frequently said about my company, if someone gave me the annual operating budget of Parma Recordings 13 years ago when I was um, dreaming it up in my head and they said, Bob, I, I, I hereby bless you to go, go, make it reality. Follow your, 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 your vision, follow your bliss. It absolutely would have failed. There is no way that I could have built the structure now then. If I, even if I had all, all the budget and everything, it wouldn't have worked. There's no way. It was the logical progression of all of it and those lessons that I learned you know, the day before I, I can very well feel on one day that today I am the best, but I know that tomorrow I'm not going to be the best. I have to be sure that I'm actively trying to stay the best. Right. And, and that's, that's, I think like this kind of continual evolution of any artist, any, anybody who stays in this business long enough. Um, and I think that's what we're all learning now. We're all, you know, my, my peer group, we're on our mid forties, the guys I grew up with, um, ton of us are still in the biz. And the further you go, 
the more you you really realize um, how hard it is to stay in and what it takes to stay in. And then the people that are in, they also know it. So you're not wasting your time with folks that are are, are playing a, a fool's a fool's game. And that's what's been really fun about getting to be in my forties. <laughs> I think of something growing older. It's it's been it's knowing that the people I'm working with, they're going to know my language, and and we're going to be able to do good work a lot faster than we were 20 years ago. That's beautiful. No, I mean, it's like at that point, everyone has to have known how to how to do the thing and has put all the failure put all the failure in, and then you're really mm-hmm. hanging out with the top dogs and like learning how it works. I think I, I think that's beautiful because not too many. Once you get to a uh, Music industry, I think younger people think after 27, well, if I didn't get there by 27, nothing's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, so, but it gets so much, it gets so much more expansive and so much more exciting, it sounds, because you're not just doing the road gig. You learn that you can't just do the road gig forever. Yeah. (laughs) Unless unless you're rolling stones at somehow or. Or, or I mean, okay, there's plenty of people who do do just a road gig forever, but they're they also got their hands in other things. And yeah, that's only comes from doing that and gaining that experience. That's totally. beautiful. What was it like? Hey, a, sorry. I was say, hey, listen, really, really quick. I should probably jump off in about you know five or eight minutes, something like that. I, I just got to go throw on a pair of pants before I leave. So um, yeah, <laughs> noted. Was yeah. it? No, the, Bob, this has been awesome. I've had it. I've been. It's so excited to dive into diving into your career, and I'm like, where? I don't even know how the. There's so much this guy's done. I don't even know how to start a conversation. This is so vast. Like, it's it's easy when I have limitations when I have my set right. notes at like, like at, the, at the beginning here. I can handle navigating a really fluent conversation. But you have made this so much fun, and it's so exciting. And like, so thank you so much. But before thank I go, you. I before you go and I go, yeah. um, what was it like working with Pete? Was he a grump? Uh, you got, I, that, that's like, that's insane. Yeah. Well, well, listen, first of all, thank you for having me on. I, I, I definitely appreciate it. It's been a, a joy talking to you. Clearly, you know, um, you know what I know. And uh, it's fun talking to people who, who know what we know. Uh, <laughs> in the record, I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so proud of this album. You know, look, Playland Arcade, this is a um, culmination of a lot of work in my life. And it's very odd to be a nearly 45-year-old guy with his debut album coming out. Uh, it, it's a different feeling. And uh I think it's a record that people can jump into. I think they can get a lot from it. Um, I think they'll have a lot of chuckles. And it's really nice to be able to share it because it's been in my head and been in my hard drive for a long time. And, uh, you know, for a while now, come, coming together throughout this pandemic and everything. And and to share it with everybody, I'm really psyched. So I'm very excited to hear feedback and, and hear people's impressions. And I'm glad that you've had time um, to kind of dig into what I've done over the years. And I'll tell you um, that it's crazy because when someone asks me what I do, what the hell am I supposed to say, That's, right? Uh, <laughs> it's going to last 90 minutes if I have to really explain what I do. Right. And, and, and it's tough. And I, what I always say is that, like, you know, when you're forced to consider what your elevator pitch is going to be, it makes you prioritize. It makes you realize what you're really, really, really all about. And that's been, I think, a variation on making this record is thinking about at age almost 45, putting out my own, my own first record. Well, what is the most important to me? How do I distill what I do artistically in such a way that um, it, it's going to be the right quote unquote elevator pitch, right? And and I think that's what this album is, and I'm really delighted with it. And I uh, I hope you dig it. Now on the topic of Pete, um, so Pete is a really interesting guy. Obviously, I think everyone knows if they've ever read anything that he's written or ever heard an interview, or ever listened to his music, you know that this guy is is um, searching and seeking. And in my limited experience with him, um, I, I'll tell you, you know, the times I've I've been 
around him and even just, you know, casual meetings or whatever. Um, in those times, it's been really heartening for me as a fan, for me as a guy who uh, got to work with his, you know, his inspiration or, or got to got to sit there and, and, and have these conversations. He is as searching and seeking as I believe he probably was when he was a 20 year old kid. And I think that is so gratifying for the fan and me to be able to meet a guy like this and to hear that he is as dissatisfied, he is as uh, um, ambitious as he has he always has been. That's inspiring. I that think is. that's an amazing experience for anybody to have, and I'm lucky to have had it, but it's it's a challenge to me, right? And I think it's a challenge to everybody to say like, you know, it's not good enough. It can be better. We can do right. more. We can <laughs> we can be right. better, right? And it's like, that's what being an artist is all about, is how do you how do you just get deep, 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 deep into that and keep going and keep going? So I, I love watching what's going on. I think the new Who album was tremendous. I'm, I'm super proud that he did it. And uh, yeah, as someone who has been told many times, never meet your heroes, um, it's happened to me a few times now. And, and I'm glad that I, I got to meet all of them. So I'm a very lucky guy. That's amazing. That new Who record is interesting too, in the, on a side note of that. It was very different from all the rest, but I think that that speaks miles with this endless search. And to wrap it all up, it, I find it fascinating that this this arc with you in this like questioning, right? Just how you do it with the people coming into Parma, like questioning yep. what you're doing in this search for what I think is probably the ultimate knowledge, which would be self knowledge, and f what are you about, and like how endless that is, and how maybe discomforting or, or inspiring this endless search can be, and like just the be around people that are excited to be doing that is so cool. So to be able to talk with you for for this hour and a half has been awesome and has got me all amped up and like so I really appreciate your time. And I find Thank it you very much. Yeah. I also find it amazing that with all these outputs, all these outlets to record a record that now you're doing your own like <laughs> like that's I know, amazing. I know. I know. Well, you know, look, I, I have a policy of separation of church and state with, with Parma, right? You will never, ever, 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 ever see my music or that of my staff anywhere near a Parma release, a Parma I project, anything. I, really I cool. believe that even the appearance of a conflict of interest is, you know, exponentially too much. And I always want my artists to know I am putting them first. It is not about me. This company is not about me. Not about my ego, not about my staff, not about us. It's about the records we put out. It's about the artists that we represent. And, you know, that's really important for me to state because I am sitting here talking about my own stuff and I am, you know, launching something some, somewhat new and uh, I'm pumped to do it. And just to put this thing out on my own, no label, no nothing, just me. That's it. That's all I wanted. And uh, and I'm really psyched with it. I think the, the, the guys that I had who helped me out to make the record, they did a brilliant job and uh, I'm so proud of it. And I hope you all dig it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bob. All right. Thanks again, man. Talk to you soon.